As was mentioned earlier, you guys are starting a new uh, sermon series on the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. And so our scripture lesson today will come from parts of chapters 1 and chapter 2. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it, is a da- if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. It did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people grew, multiplied, and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families, and then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered him, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Indeed, God, we are thankful for your word because it tells us that you are not hidden from us. You are not silent. You have spoken. You have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ and in the pages of this holy scripture we just read. And so we pause now to ask for your help because apart from you, we can't understand it. Apart from you, I can't speak it. Lord, I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit for me and for everyone within the sound of my voice. Lord, that your words would shine through, that the story of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus will be on display and we will be transformed by his glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you've gotten to hear a lot about me and my story uh, so far this morning, and I'm so appreciative. Again, I think this is 
such a cool church that you guys celebrate the work of others in the city. Uh, but really, I really came here to ask you something else today, not about me and my story, but about you. I came here to ask, who are you? And what is your story? Or as the title of my sermon says, what story are you in? And what I mean by that is that my assertion is that everyone in this room is living in some kind of a story. Because story is the way we make sense of the world, right? Story is the way we make sense of our lives in the world. That's why we love stories. That's why we love movies and books and TV shows, because everyone can relate to a story. And every one of us in this room is living in a story that, because of the people and the circumstances of our lives, has shaped our most fundamental questions about life. Who is God? Who am I? What is my purpose in this life? The British missiologist Leslie Newbigin, he says this in his book, The Gospel in the Pluralistic Society. Listen to what he says. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? That's the question, isn't it? The answer to all of our deepest questions in life depends upon your conception of what story you're living in. Let me give you a, a personal example from my life. So when I was 17 years old, the most significant relationships in my life disappeared in a matter of months. So my parents divorced, separated, divorced, and I was estranged from my dad for several years after that. My first mentor that was in my life, my youth pastor, left for another church. And my girlfriend moved to a different state, which at the time was a big deal. But you see where I'm at, at the precipice of my adult life, when I would be navigating some of the most important decisions of my life, where to go to college, what to do with my life, who to spend my life with, everyone left, or so it seemed to me. And so what do you think the story became in my head as a 17-year-old young man? The story became you are all alone. You can't depend on anyone or anything. Everyone, they will all abandon you. It's all up to you. And friends, I got to tell you, even though my circumstances have changed significantly 25 years later, and even though I know, I know in here that I have a heavenly father that will never leave me and never forsake me, you know a story I'm still tempted to live in? That I'm all alone. I think all of us have stories like this, don't we? That's when I ask, I just want to ask you today, what is the story that you are tempted to live in? And I'm asking you that because I think that's what the first two chapters of Exodus are asking us, underneath everything we just read and everything we didn't read from chapters one and two. Hope is beginning today. This preaching series on the life of Moses is found in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And I think it's kind of interesting that I get to kick off the series this morning and then disappear, never to be heard from again. <laughs> And let everyone else uh, correct whatever wrong things I say today. But suffice to say, if you know anything, Moses is one of the most famous figures in all the Bible. And the book of Exodus is one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. So I was studying this week. Here's what commentators are saying about the book of Exodus. It's the gospel of the Old Testament. It's God's first great act of redemption. It's the great miracle of the Old Testament that becomes the paradigm for how we understand what Jesus does for us by leading us out of slavery to sin and death. Because this is the story we make movies about. 
from the famous 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston. You guys remember this, right? Or maybe my personal favorite, the 1998 DreamWorks animated film, The Prince of Egypt. Not exactly correct, but really entertaining. My point is, friends, most people, whether you're a Christian or not, you actually have some sense of what this story is about. You know the story of Exodus, how God, through Moses, leads a people out of slavery in Egypt through the parted waters of the Red Sea. It's an amazing story. But friends, you've got to see, as the curtain opens on this amazing story in these first couple of chapters, it is incredibly uncertain whether this happy ending will even happen. I find this so interesting. Listen, a story that ends with the amazing presence of God. That's the last chapter in Exodus. There's the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. God is so amazingly present. Actually begins in chapter one with the seeming absence of God. Injustice and evil are running rampant and God seems nowhere to be found. A story that climaxes with an incredible miracle through the hands of an incredible leader begins with a complete and utter failure of this very same leader. You see, this story is not certain in these opening chapters. And it leads us to ask the question, what story are we actually in? And so the way I want to, I want to ask you these, these questions through two perspectives in these opening chapters. What story are you in when God seems absent? And what story are you in when you experience failure? First of all, when God seems absent. Our passage began with this startling scene where the king of Egypt is ordering the murder of all male Hebrew babies. And so I should probably give you a little context, a little background about what in the world is happening here. So the people of Israel, a.k.a. the Hebrews, they're dwelling in the land of Egypt. And they're actually flourishing there. Multiple times in Exodus 1, what it says is that they were being fruitful and multiplying and increasing greatly. Fruitful, multiplying, increasing greatly. If that language sounds familiar to you, it should. It's from the original command given to God's people back in Genesis 1:28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what's happening. In Exodus 1, it's happening. The people of God are flourishing in a foreign land in Egypt. They're becoming this great nation that's going to bless all the nations, just like God promised. And all of that changes in a snap. Eight verses into the story, the part before what we read, this is what we hear, Exodus 1, 8 through 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Notice that it says the new king did not remember Joseph. Who's Joseph? Well, Joseph is the whole reason Israel is even in Egypt. Remember his story is towards the end of Genesis uh, he's, he's the favored son of Jacob's 12 son. Remember the coat of many colors? His brothers hate him because they're jealous of him. They sell him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt of all places. And in Egypt, God blesses him. And he rises to great power to be like the prime minister of Egypt. And so he's in the right place at the right time by God's design to save the people of Egypt and even his own people from certain starvation during a seven-year devastating famine. See, even though Joseph is a Hebrew... Joseph should be famous in the history books of Egypt. This is the guy that saved us. 
This is the guy that saved us, who led us through such perilous times. But now there's a new king, and he doesn't know Joseph. And therefore, he only sees this flourishing nation of Israel as a political threat. He's determined to do something about it. And we read about it. The rest of chapter 1 goes from bad to worse to pure evil. First, he oppresses Israel through slavery, trying to make their lives bitter with hard service, but they continue to multiply. So the king commands the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children as soon as they are born, so as to stop their multiplication. When that doesn't work, he resorts to outright genocide, ordering all Egyptians everywhere to cast all Hebrew sons into the Nile River to drown. This is hideous. This is terrible, terrible injustice, and it's all because the new king of Egypt forgot Joseph. But friends, there's a deeper question in this text. It's a deeper question in the hearts and the minds of God's people who are living this. And the question is, did God forget us? Did God forget us? Does he know our suffering? Does he remember us? Does he remember his promises? Where in the world is God? (coughs) Scholars have noted that the apparent absence of God in the first two chapters of Exodus His name is barely mentioned, and when he is mentioned, it's almost like he's a bystander of what's happening. It seems that Pharaoh's in charge. It seems that evil and injustice are running unchecked. It seems that God is checked out. Where's God? Has he forgotten his promises? Israel's thinking, he promised to make us into a great nation, but Egypt is killing our children. They're thinking, he promised to give us a land of our own where we could be at rest, but we're in a foreign land and we're slaves. Work, 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 and no rest ever. The people are thinking, are we living in a story where God has forgotten us? He's not the only person, they're not the only people to ask that question. C.S. Lewis, the great author, the great writer, and an Anglican, by the way, He asked a similar question. He asked a similar question in the, in the wake of the death of his wife. I don't know if you know this, but Lewis waited much later in life to get married, and then he lost his beloved wife to cancer just three years into marriage. And he wrote this incredibly vulnerable book called A Grief Observed. Listen to how Lewis describes his experience. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the other side. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was so strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Lewis concludes, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God, The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. 
The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Friends, that was the danger for Israel in Exodus 1, not to cease believing in God, but to believe such dreadful things about him. That he was an absentee God who has forgotten them just like Pharaoh forgot Joseph. Friends, maybe this is the story you were tempted to live in, especially when you are suffering, when life does not turn out the way you planned it in your mind, when evil and injustice seem to win everywhere, when you don't feel God, when he feels absent. Are you tempted to live in the story that God has forgotten you and forgotten his promises to you? First of all, I'm so glad that we can say that out loud. You can say that out loud. To God, to each other, to people in this room, it is not weakness of faith to do so. No one would charge C.S. Lewis with weak faith, would we? Or the men who wrote the Psalms, who were also so brutally honest with God, he invites you actually, when you're feeling this, to come and lament before him. Brothers and sisters, like the Psalms do, even the laments, they're also an invitation to deeper trust. To believe what God says over what your present circumstances are saying. To trust that the hidden hand of God is always at work, even if you can't see it. I want you to notice in our passage, even though God seems absent, even though his name is almost absent, his fingerprints are everywhere. Everything Pharaoh tries to do fails. The more he oppresses Israel, the more they multiply. He commands abortion, but the midwives fear God rather than him, and they defy him. I love this. We don't even know the name of the king of Egypt, but we know the name of these Hebrew midwives. Kept in all history for us, Shifra and Puah. He commands genocide to kill all the Hebrew boys in the Nile, and then his own daughter saves a Hebrew boy out of the Nile. He's the very one who's going to grow up to be their deliverer. See? This is God's hidden hand at work. If he seems absent, he's not. He's present, and he's working. And just in case those hints weren't enough for us, I love, I think the author knows that we needed it. So at the end of Exodus chapter 2, the author kind of pulls back the curtain to reveal what's been happening behind the scenes all along. Exodus 2 verses 23 to 25 says this, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and listen, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Are there any more beautiful words than those for those who fear that God is absent? God hears you. He remembers you. He sees you. He knows you. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this is the story that you are living in. Secondly, let's consider what story you in when you experience failure. That's the thing we've got to talk about in this passage. Because the turn from chapter 1 to chapter 2 in Exodus makes it clear that the birth of this miracle child is really special. And that this child is supposed to grow up to become something really special. Verse 2 even says that he was a fine child. I love that. He's a fine child. He's a beautiful child. Actually, the literal word is Good. It's the same word in the creation story when God made everything and he said, it is good. 
the, the meaning is the birth of this child is good, just like the birth of creation was good. There's a new birth happening here. See, this child, born under a death sentence, and yet he survives, hidden for three months against all odds, and when, when they can't keep him safe anymore, his mother sends him down the Nile in a basket daubed with bitumen and pitch. This word, actually, for that basket is only used one other place in the Bible. You know where it is? It's the word for Noah's ark. The author is saying, just like Noah is saved from the deadly waters in an ark, so Moses is saved from the deadly Nile through an ark so that he can grow up to be the one who saves God's people by leading them safely through the waters of the Red Sea. Against all odds, he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. Everyone's surprised she has pity on him. She defies her father. Maybe she she was a teenage daughter, actually, to make more sense. She defies her father. She saves the child. She arranges unknowingly for, her, for his own mother to nurse him and pays her to do it. How about that? Would you like to get paid to nurse your own child? Yes, please. And then she names him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. That's the exact same thing that God is going to do through Moses to draw his people out of the waters, out of slavery, out of the waters of the Red Sea, and into freedom. All that is to say, the expectations for this miracle child could not be higher. And then he promptly grows up and fails. That's what he does. He tries to intervene, thinks he's helping to try to help a fellow Hebrew. He ends up killing an Egyptian and trying to cover it up. What's wrong with that? Well, lots of things. As one commentator notes, we cannot do God's work in worldly ways. He's trying to help, but it's the wrong way. That's what he kills this Egyptian, and the result is his own people reject him. Did you hear it? Who made you king, prince, and ruler over us? You're not leading us. You're not our leader. His own people reject him, and Pharaoh wants to kill him, and he has to run away to the land of Midian. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way this, this story was supposed to go. This miracle child, he was supposed to succeed, and yet he fails. I know we know the rest of the story, but Every indication is at the end of chapter 2, Moses plans to stay right there in Midian. He's run away. He's never going to go back to Egypt. He gets married, starts a family, settles down, becomes a shepherd. He's there 40 years. He has no plans to go back. But I wonder at night when it was quiet, when the noise of the day had gone away, I wonder if Moses' mind wandered to his suffering people in Egypt. And I wonder if he thought of what could have been if he hadn't screwed up so badly. I wonder where your mind wanders at night if you dwell on your regrets, the things that didn't come about. What story do you tell yourself when you fail? That it was all up to you? That's it? You blew it? That this was your one shot? There's no going back. This is irredeemable. Like me, does the imposter syndrome take over? A little voice that says, see, I, I knew you couldn't do it. We knew it. Does that voice of shame come in and say, not that you have failed, but that you are a failure? I don't know about the other parents in this room, but I never feel more like a failure than as a parent. This has always been the case, and then I had teenagers. And now I know it even more. Anybody, by the way, anyone you think is like killing it as a parent and doing so great, they're, they're not. They're terrified. That they're, we all are terrified that we're failing. 
his parents. The story I want to share with you is when my older two, Jackson and Olivia, were much younger. They were about four and two, I think. We were going, going over to our friend's house for a whole family play date. Um, they were dear friends of ours, and we did this fairly often. And as we pulled in the driveway, uh, their kids were at the age, our kids were at the age where every time you see each other, it's like a long lost reunion. You know what I mean? Like we've been lost at sea for a year, and they're like, oh my gosh. So the kids are in the front windows, like waiting anxiously to see us pull up in the driveway. And we pull up, and they come running out, and the family comes running out, and maybe the dogs, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's chaos, and we got out, and we gave hugs, and we grabbed whatever food and belongings we were supposed to bring, and we went inside into the house, like we'd done multiple times. A few minutes go by, the kids are running around, playing all over the house, it's beautiful chaos. But then we notice that we haven't seen Olivia, my two-year-old, in a while. And then, you know, you know as a parent, that starts as a mild concern. You're like, ah, she's probably playing upstairs somewhere. Maybe they're playing hide and seek. She's hiding really, really well. But as more time goes by and then we still can't find her, you, the panic starts to set in, right? And so we start walking all over the house. Where is she? We're looking everywhere. And then it dawns on us. The car. The car. We open the front door and we can hear the muffled cry coming from the car. We've forgotten to unbuckle our precious daughter out of her car seat and take her inside with us. In the midst of all this excitement, we forgot our daughter. We failed her as parents. And this was not the first time or the last. Friends, I want to tell you it's okay. She's fine today. Her eye starts twitching anytime she gets in a car. But other than that, she's, she's great. But friends, she's fine not because of us, not because of our parenting. She's fine because God works beyond, despite, and even through my failures as a parent. Brothers and sisters, I am so thankful that we are in a story where God doesn't forget us. And I'm so thankful we're in a story where he works beyond, despite, and even through our failures to bring redemption. So that our failures do not define us. The grace of God does. Friends, there is grace all over this passage in the midst of Moses' failures. There's grace that God is working beyond Moses through the most unlikely of people. Notice all the heroes of this story are women. The women who had no status in the ancient world. All the Hebrews. All, all the heroes. It's the Hebrew midwives. It's Moses' mother and sister. It's Pharaoh's daughter. While Moses is screwing up, they're being faithful. God is always working beyond you beyond your failures in surprising ways. More importantly, listen, God is working through Moses' failures to prepare him for his ultimate calling. He actually uses Moses' failure to give him the one thing that he lacked as a leader. You know what that was? Humility. Humility. Because of his failure, Moses, for the first time, he identifies with his suffering people. The privileged child of Egypt, now he knows what it's like to be like them. To feel forgotten. To have a bounty on his head as an adult. To be a sojourner in a foreign land. Now he gets it. He actually goes out into Midian. He becomes a humble shepherd, which is the exact training ground he needs to become Israel's shepherd. To lead them out. 
by God's grace, the final word in Moses' life is not his failure, but his faith. In Hebrews 11, this is this so-called great hall of faith. By the way, this isn't the hall of, of, of shame. This isn't the people that fail. This is the hall of faith. And guess who's in it? Moses. Describing this chapter that we just read, listen to what's said. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That is a gracious reading of what we just read. Because that's what God's grace does. His faithful identification with the people of God only came about because of his failure. So brothers and sisters, I ask you again, what story are you in? If you are in Christ, you are in the story of the God of Exodus. The God who turns absence into his abiding presence. The one who uses failure to even bring about redemption. I know this is true. I can tell you this is true, but you need to know it's true not just because of the story of Moses. You need to know it's true because it's actually the story of Jesus. If you just have the story of Moses, you have a wonderful story and a great, a great example. But thankfully, we have the story of Jesus because Jesus actually took the absence of God for us so that you would always know his presence. What did he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken, never forgotten, not once. Even in the seeming absence at the cross, this hideous cross, the hidden hand of God was bringing about salvation. Friends, I know this is true for you because Jesus humbled himself by coming down out of the palace of heaven to identify with you and me. He chose it willingly. He became like us in every way except sin. He came to his own and we rejected him just like Moses. But he uses the apparent failure of a shameful death on a cross to bring about the greatest exodus in the history of the world. To lead us through the waters of baptism out of slavery to sin and death and into an even greater promised land. The new heavens and the new earth. This is our story, friends. This is our story. And believe you me, it is our only comfort in life and in death. In fact, that's how I want to close. As you think about how now shall we live in light of this, I think one of the greatest ways we can express uh, our hope of what it means to live in light of these truths is a question that comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. Some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture, uh, not in Scripture, and something that summarizes Scripture in the Catechism. In fact, I want to invite you to say it with me. Would you stand? Friends, let's comfort one another with these words. Christians, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, 
Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we bring our stories before you, the stories you know we are tempted to live in, I pray you would assure us of eternal life, of your presence with us, of your promises to us, of your work in us and through us despite our failures, and you would make us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for you. Help us to not be afraid. Give us faith. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.